Now hear this. The Jamaican music that is emerging in the whole reggae phenomenon is the first real people's language. You are listening to Turtle Bay Presents Reggae 45 with Don Lutz. Rock the bass like fire. Reggae, reggae, dance on, dance on, rock steady, rock steady, sky. It's Reggae 45. Who goes there, there? With Don Lutz and Tony. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, one and all. I'm Don Lutz with another edition of Reggae 45, coming at you direct from Turtle Bay in Brixton. And it gives me great pleasure to present Chris Salovich, journalist, broadcaster, and esteemed author of books like Rude Boy, Once Upon a Time in Jamaica, Redemption Song, the definitive biography of Joe Strummer, and Bob Marley, The Untold Story. His work has also appeared in serious publications like The Sunday Times, The Guardian, The Independent, Q, Mojo, Time Out, and many more. In fact, it was during his time as features writer for the New Musical Express in the late 70s that he formed a unique relationship with Bob. And in the year that would have seen his 73rd birthday, I thought who better to give a unique insight into the Rasta man that sold more than 75 million records, spread reggae around the globe, and remains the ultimate symbol of Jamaican identity and culture. So, sit tight and listen keenly. Chris, before we get into it, can you set the tone and give the listeners some background on Bob's early years, before he moved from Nine Mile in the Country to the hard reality of Trenchtown in Kingston? Well, you mentioned Nine Mile in the Country, and, and that's, the, uh, that's the apposite reference, really, because people, people always associate Bob with you know, the notion of Trenchtown, Trenchtown Rock, etc. But really, Bob is a country boy. He, grow, he grows up in the country. His family are from the country. Um, he's from a place called Nine Miles in St. Anne, which is the north-central part of Jamaica. And significantly, it's 3,500 feet up in the air. It's very high. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended, obviously. But that creates a much... It's a, it's a more temperate climate. It's easier to live in than kind of... As it then later as it would be down in Trenchtown, his family on his mother's side had been there for a long time, and his grandfather Omariah Malcolm. You know, there's this notion of oh, Bob came from the grinding poverty of country life. It's not really quite true, because his his grandfather owned a lot of land, rented more land. They had a, D- a Desoto car, for example, an American Desoto car. And they had, although there was no electricity, they had the only Delco generator in the neighbourhood. And on a Sunday, people would come from miles around to listen to their radio. And they would listen to, sometimes they'd listen to sermons from Kingston or music broadcasting from Cuba. So, and and also, there's another relative who had been a guitarist in dance bands in the 1940s who would would teach Bob uh, the rudiments. Uh, uh, but this is after something very... Bob is born uh, on February the 6th, uh, 1945, to his 18-year-old mother, Sadella, Sadella Malcolm, as she then was. She had kind of hooked up with, with a busher, as they're known in, J- in Jamaica, the guys, are estate overseers, a man in his 60s called uh, Norval Marley, who's from a white, possibly not pure white, Kingston family, but an affluent uptown Kingston family who own 
a business called Marley and Plant. Marley, it's plant hire. That's what the, that's what they were into. They lived on Skyline Drive in Jacks Hill, and in Kingston, you can't get much more uptown than that. And ironically, that's where Rita Marley later buys a house, and she pestered Bob actually to live there, but that didn't happen. But 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 when Bob is, who is already indicated a propensity for for um, reading palms from the age of three onwards. But at the age of five, his father gets in touch with his grandfather, in fact, and says that he thinks it would be a good idea if Bob goes to live in Kingston. He'll look after him. He'll give him a better upbringing, a better education than he could get in the country. And so, accordingly, Bob is taken to, to Kingston, but he's lodged with her instead with a woman called Mrs. Gray downtown by the Spanish Town Road, which is a very rough part of Kingston. Never sees his father again. His mother is deeply concerned about this. Her son has gone missing. And it's almost a year before a neighbour of his mother is, visit is visiting Kingston and runs across him in the street. He's going to buy some coal for Mrs. Gray. And so the woman doesn't have a pen or pencil <laughs> and doesn't, can't write down the name, but roughly remembers where it is. And his mother, Sidella, goes to Kingston and finds him and brings him back to Nine Mile. But this must have been very traumatic for him. Must have been very traumatic for him. He's essentially abandoned. He's been with his mother the first five years of his life. Not there at all. He's lodged with this kind of woman who's ill from, from diabetes. I think this is a formative time. Because also he hears a lot of music for the first time. And when he comes back, someone asks him to read his palm. He says, no, I may not read palm no more. It's music we make now. Wow, that's unbelievable. So Bob was kind of living large and kind of did a backward move almost, really. I he guess. went back to the and he went back to the country and then he went back to, to the, the country. country and also he's learned to play football. Interestingly, actually, his mother, when 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 she was pregnant with him, said he used to kick her stomach like a footballer. And of course, we know that Bob's other thing, apart from music, was football. But he's, he's playing football with with a grapefruit or oranges. You know, he's not hasn't got a ball. <laughs> Drop the bass like fire. Don Letts presents Reggae Forty Five. Now, Chris, the mainstream got hit to Bob with the release of the seminal album Catch a Fire on Island Records in 1973. But as you know, between 1962 and 1972, when he signed to Chris Blackwell's label, he'd already released over 80 singles and four albums. And it's this period I'm particularly interested in, because once Bob's life took off, it seemed like it became a matter of public record. Tell me about that pre-island period. Where do we start? It's kind of... He, he, he's, he and the Whalers work with... Cox and Dodd for two or three years until Bob gets married in uh, in 1966 March 1966 to Rita who allegedly was pregnant and miscarried the next day he goes to the United States to stay with his mother Wilmington Delaware but the reason he wants to go there is to get money to form their own label for for the whalers and he just scrapes money together so they released they released their own tunes on, on the Whalem Solem label. But at the beginning of 1967, and significantly, by the way, by going to America, he's, Bob has missed the arrival of Haile Selassie in Jamaica, and it's Rita that turns him onto, onto Rastafari, having seen the stigmata on the hand of Haile Selassie as he waves through the, through the Daimler limousine. And so, therefore, connected with this is the arrival at a, at a Naya Bingi dance in January of '67 of Danny Sims and Johnny Nash. And Johnny Nash is a is a successful 
R&B singer from Texas. Danny Sims is his manager, who is always said to be involved, you know, basically black mafia. But it's slightly on the run from the FBI. That's why they're there, actually. But I don't think for, for you know, for, for that nefarious reasons, but, but because they were apparently involved, you know, they were wrongly associated with the black power movement. However, that's also kind of significant in the background of all this. Bob meets Danny Sims and Johnny Nash at this, this Nyabingi celebration in Trenchtown. And Danny Sims is really taken with Bob's work. And the other whalers work too, although Bunny is in prison at this time and has possibly trumped up ganja charge. He signs them to a publishing deal. And this transforms their life. You know, they're on, they're on reasonable money. They're on like something like, you know, I think it's 200 US dollars a month, 50 US dollars uh, uh, a week. In Jamaica, will get you a long way. And they start, they start pouring songs out. And they do over 200 songs for, for Danny Sims, including, for example, Stir It Up, which, which Johnny Nash records uh, and is an, is an international hit. Johnny Nash, despite being from Texas, by the way, is known as the king of reggae for a time in this country. But one tune that they did, which I always loved, it's called Nice Time, and it's about long time. You don't have no nice time fair. Think about this and think about that. It's about the hustle of Bob's life. And he'd gone off to the country. Because there are periods where he goes back to the country to, to record and to come to terms with himself. As I said, the country boy. And I believe the executive producer, Danny Sims, was instrumental in getting Bob signed to CBS in London. Priam doing a deal with Ireland. How did that all happen? That's correct. Um, this was after... I mean, you probably know about Bob's six months in Sweden, where he went to work on the soundtrack of a film in which Johnny Nash was starring. Then he comes to London, and that is when Danny Sims gets him a deal, and, he, and they do this tune, Reggae on Broadway, which basically does nothing and uh, gets no promotion. But that, that's the period when, um, you know, Bob, uh, I think he just does one gig with the entire Whalers, but he's doing promotional shows, with Johnny Nash playing at, you know, this famously played at two schools in London, one in Wembley, one in Peckham. Uh, and then things fall apart with Danny Sims uh, and they go to see Chris Blackwell and he signs them. That's Their life changes at that point. But hold on a second, we've missed one person that's definitely in the mix, but I'm not sure where. Where did he meet up with Lee Scratch Perry? Lee Scratch Perry, okay. Lee Scratch Perry, who became, you know, you know, I consider him to be like the Picasso of, of reggae. I mean, he's a, a great, great artist in, it, in any field. It's funny, I always describe him as the Salvador Dali of Jamaican music, but go on. Not much difference. <laughs> um, and Scratch had been a, he'd been a kind of fixer, really, and, and, and for, for Cox and Dodd. So the, the Lee Perry uh, relationship is very interesting because 68, 69, Bob comes back from the United States again, his third trip there, staying with his mother again. And it's worth noting that the, 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 the Chrysler factory he worked at in Wilmington, Delaware, there was a branch of the Ku Klux Klan. So, he's, you know, that's this is sort of significant because it's politicised him. And the, the prevailing, you know, uh, a, a black liberation movement in the United States has also politicised him. So he wants to record this tune, Black Progress, which he does do ultimately. But he doesn't want to work with the Whalers anymore. He thinks he wants to go off on his own. And he links up with Scratch, thinking he'd be the appropriate producer. They go off to the country 
uh, to um, the west of the island, Trelawney, to where uh, Scratch is from. They stay with his mother there. One of the things that happens is that Scratch gives Bob singing lessons. And if you notice, from that point on, because they then make two albums, Soul Rebels and Soul Revolution, Bob's voice has changed from that earlier voice that we heard on, you know, sort of simmer down, obviously the most basic, basic kind of tune, but all those earlier tunes, like, you know, like Nice Time, for example. And if you listen to Scratch made this fantastic single in 1976 called Dreadlocks in Moonlight. And if you listen to Scratch's voice on that, who does it sound like? Bob Marley. And so Bob Marley has learnt stuff from Scratch, I would suggest. You know what, Chris, I'm curious. Do you remember when you first became aware of Bob, pre-actually meeting him? What was it about his music that caught your imagination? I can't pretend to, to have known about Bob Marley before Catch a Fire. I was turned on to him by a guy called Brian Blevins, who was the press officer at, at Island Records, a Canadian guy, fantastic guy. And he just said, you're going to love this stuff. And what I felt about that record, which is a magnificent record, but which only sold 15,000 copies at the time, by the way, was, was um, took a quantum leap when I went to see the Whalers when they came over to London to play at the Speakeasy nightclub near Oxford Circus. They did four or five nights there. I saw all of them but one. And what was, a, what was a, really, I found astounding, was that they started with a song that wasn't recorded. It was, came on, on Burning, Rastaman Chant. And it's just this kind of, it's like, it was like going to church, you know, but a kind of very anarchic church, clearly. And the way they began with that tune, that very, very hypnotic, addictive tune, just pulled you into it. And it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. It was like, you know, you're on the, you could be on the other side of the moon listening to music. And it just entranced and enchanted me. And the subject matter, the hard-hitting subject matter of songs like Concrete Jungle, you know, really did it for me. And, and they, no one was writing material like that. You know, that, that, that nowadays they talk about, oh, Jamaican songs were just like, you know, it's just like alternative newspapers. But I'd not really heard those alternative newspapers. And actually, I would say no one did the alternative newspapers as well as Bob Marley. After having discovered Catch a Fire, I then learnt that Lee Scratch Perry, who I'd already knew a little bit about, had made two albums with the Whalers, uh, Soul Rebel and Soul Revolution. And I went and got them. And actually, I think those are the very greatest Bob Marley and the Whalers, or Whalers records, because there's just a kind of clarity and a punch about the production and the subject matter. As we said, songs like Mr. Brown. And Mr. Brown is actually not actually written. The words, words aren't actually written by Bob. They're written by Glenn Adams, who's the keyboard player. These songs were all recorded by Lee Scratch Perry, but not. he didn't have his Black Ark studio then. They're recorded at, at, at Randy's uh, studio above Randy's record store in Parade in Kingston, engineered by Clive Chin. But Mr. Brown is particularly interesting because Jamaicans love bizarre stories. And Mr. Brown is the story of a, a, a John Crow, a vulture, I don't Jamaica, a vulture that had been seen on the back of a coffin on its way to a funeral. And then the John, this John Crow, Mr. Brown, was apparently seen, you know, in a courthouse, you know, sitting next to the judge. 
and it takes on a huge myth. And it's disgusting in the Galena, the major newspaper of Jamaica. And and it's and at the beginning of the, the tune, there's these kind of hammer horror noises. from. But that's from Bunny Livingston. As he was then known, he became Bunny Whaler later, by the way. But he's making those noises. So it's also a kind of production tour de force and very funny and a classic example of, of Jamaican eccentric records, which became a big hit. You know, I love the story of Chris Blackwell's first encounter with Bob when the Whalers walked into his London office, which would end with the release of the Whalers' debut album Catch a Fire in 73. What's your take on the success of that album? Because although it gained him a new audience, it also seemed to polarise his grassroots fan base. Well, the point about Catch a Fire was that... Essentially, Chris Blackwell gives them 4,000, I think it's US dollars, to go down to Jamaica to make this record, which they do largely at Harry J's studio. And they bring it up to, uh, to London. And Chris Blackwell is knocked out by it, but knows what he wants to do with it. Because part of his idea of uh, the Whalers, as they then were, before the, even the idea of Bob Marley and the Whalers, it was based on the Jimi Hendrix trio and how Jimi Hendrix, an American black act, had come over to England and his career was launched out of England and into America. And uh, he understands that, that, you know, Rastafari has this, you know, he understands that, that, that it gives plenty to, be, to write about in the media, etc. But he also is worried that the music is a little bit too Jamaican, that it's a bit too rough. For a, for a kind of white white rock audience, which is what he's aiming at. The idea is is that they that the Whalers are going to be the equivalent of a they're going to be a black rock act basically, black reggae act. But so like they're going to be marketed like a black rock act. Further guitar, kind of white rock but more bluesy guitar is put on right across the record by a guy called Wayne Perkins. You know, twenty year old white American from Alabama, ironically, you know, the most racist possibly of American states. And Rabbit Bundrick, who is a keyboards player from uh, Texas uh, and who'd played with Free and later goes on to play with The Who and other people. He had you know, plenty of, of keyboard parts, largely sort of Hammond organ. And, you know, there's this, there's this view that kind of this is done against the will of Bob Marley and the other Whalers. Bob's totally into it. He's telling both of them what... He's actually in the studio telling both of them what to do. So... That's actually what, what happens with Catch a Fire. And then, of course, there's the famous Zippo lighter cover is, is devised, which you know, could scratch the record, but that's another matter. But the fact is, although it's a huge critical hit, Catch a Fire sells only 15,000 copies initially. Eventually, it sells over a million, of course. But initially, it's, with the public, it's not really a hit because the public is really resistant to reggae. People's attitude, white rock fans' attitude towards reggae was it was quite extraordinary most of them loathed it it took some time it's reggae 45s all the way now i didn't realize this at the time but it was just six months later that the whalers released their second album burning for island records which featured a tune that gave eric clapton a number one hit in 1974 and they went on to promote it supporting slimer family stone stateside from the outside, it looked and sounded great, but it seems like something else was going on inside. Well, the, what's going on inside is, is turmoil between the three members. You know, you know, Bunny Livingston, as he was still known, declares that he will not fly on an iron bird. <laughs> and when he asked Chris Blackwell what kind of uh, 
dates they're going to be playing on the projected tour of the United States. Chris says freak clubs, which is what they were, you know, hippies were known, there was a synonym for, for hippies in those days. Bunny seems to read that as some transvestites or whatever and declares adamantly that he will not do this tour. He's substituted by Joe Hicks, who was like a, who's a mentor of the Whalers in Trenchtown and had actually written the lyrics to the Peter Tosh song Stepping Razor. So they tour supporting Sly and the Family Stone and they, they're kind of kicked off the tour after a few days. Uh, I'm never sure why people say I heard oh, it was because they were doing better than Sly. It's like they were doing better, but you know, but on the other hand, they would say that, wouldn't they? Of course. Um, uh, but anyway, they, 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 but they do record at Kaysan in San Francisco on that tour, you know, a legendary, uh, you know, kind of an official bootleg. It was like they, you know, they play a, they play a live show on, you know, broadcast on, on the very hip Kaysan uh, station in San Francisco. And that definitely helps them, you know, in, 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 the, in, an, in a, on an underground level. However, they then come to England and it's November and uh, uh, it's only Peter Tosh, and I'm not sure if Joe Higgs was involved in that. But but anyway, it's it's, it's Bob and Peter Tosh, and they do Leeds University, and uh, uh, th- that concert is available on one of the re-releases as a, as a kind of extra. But I think it was Northampton that they then do, and it snows, <laughs> and Peter Tosh immediately decides this is a sign from Jar that the tour cannot continue and leave so the tour is abandoned so it's not really very successful that however the you know the the you know this was the tour for the burning record and uh there is some magnificent tunes on that not the least of which of course is get up stand up which was co-written by by bob and peter tosh and becomes it becomes like an an, an anthem of kind of you know of, of liberation now, by 1974, the magical trio are no more. Essentially, Bob's gone solo, as have Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler. So Bob had a lot to prove with the release of Natty Dread. But it seems to me he was more than covered by the introduction of the I-3s, as in Judy Moat, Marcia Griffith, and his wife, Rita Marley, and the killer rhythm section, brothers Carly and Aston family man Barrett, on drum and bass. What was your take on this new incarnation, Chris? Well, it was kind of what you heard about this new incarnation was, was what you literally heard on Natty Dread and I would say that the, the tune the title tune Natty Dread kind of says it all incidentally that record was originally called Naughty Dread but it was kind of for marketing reasons it was changed to Natty Dread but you know Bob has to go out there on his own He's a, and, and it seems sometimes I think on that record particularly on that title track he almost seems like a voice in the wilderness. He's calling out there. You know, there are not those other people around him anymore. You know, it seems, it seems, despite the addition of the I3, it seems very much a solo record and the most solo of all his records. And I know on it, there's, you know, he gets his first international hit with No Woman, No Cry when, it's the, when the live version is released the next year. But there's a sort of solitariness about that record. You know, in tunes, for example, like Three O'Clock Roadblock. You know, it's it seems it seems a lonely record. It always seems to me. It's and and it's that loneliness that is part of its appeal to me. 
1976, the Mighty Three rise again, albeit separately. Bunny Whaler with Black Art Man, Peter Tosh with Legalize It, and Bob Marley and the Whalers with Rasta Man Vibration. Who won, Chris? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But it did give Bob his first top ten Billboard hit, didn't that's it? That's right, that's right. You know, there's this kind of myth that uh, that uh, Bob Marley uh, was not a big commercial success in the, in the United States initially. But, but Rasta Man Vibration, I remember looking at the American charts saying, oh, it's there at number ten. I don't think it got any higher than number ten, I think it was, but it was a top ten record. And... They marketed that record very well. Kind of, it was more marketed, I would say, at the American, you know, stoner youth, because the cover, the gatefold sleeve, had this had this indication that this sleeve is great for cleaning herb. <laughs> I got that. So I spotted the title. This is alone, alone boys. Yeah, what this do is, you we're mean? Push, we're pushing it here a yeah. bit, aren't we? It is a bit obvious, you know. As a matter of fact, the Rastaman vibration, which has a very expansive sound. As opposed to what I feel is a slightly austere sound of Natty Dread, to me it's my favourite Bob Marley record. I love the Rastaman vibration, and I love the whole flow of it from the way it starts. You know, and it starts with the tune "Positive Vibration," which just seems to state it all about Bob Marley's philosophy and his approach to life. You are listening to Reggae Forty Five with Don Letts. Check us out at www.turtlebay.co.uk. Right, in 1976, Jamaica's in a state of political turmoil, and there was an attempt on Bob Marley's life, which set him on a new path, literally and lyrically, which was pretty self-evident in the grooves of Exodus, released in 1977. The same year I found myself playing dub reggae to punks as DJ down at the Roxy in London, during which time Chris and I became friends. That's Chris Salowich. And it was in this cultural climate that the punky reggae party was born. What's your take on how that single came about? Well, as you know, initially, uh, you know, Bob was very sceptical of punk. Uh, but I was told it was Scratch Perry uh, who, who bent his ear about it. I know you had a chat with him about it. But I was told it was Scratch Perry actually in the studio who had produced the clash by that point. <laughs> on their uh, complete control single uh, at site we would have loved to have beheld. Uh, and and the, the record, I loved that record. I thought it absolutely defined the era. And it was absolutely of the zeitgeist because, you know, the, the, the punky reggae party did exist. You know, people like to decry it now. So it was absolutely true. Well, we're you know, we're we, both products of it, aren't we? Absolutely. You know, you'd go to go to punk gigs and you'd just hear reggae. You know, I mean, you wouldn't go to reggae gigs and just hear punk like this. However, <laughs> however, there was, you know, the fusion that existed in, in acts like, in this country specifically, like Steel Pulse and Aswad, for example. And it's, and it's, and it's Aswad, parts of Aswad anyway, the play on Punky Reggae Party, which was just, as far as I know, was just knocked up in the studio of an evening, almost as a kind of laugh, you know. But it's a lovely record, the jam, the clash, the feel-goods too. Bob is in there, he got all those words in. And Bob, of course, had been to see the clash on their White Riot tour. He'd stood in the wings at the Rainbow in, in North London. And uh, so Mick Jones of the clash said, yeah, but we gave him free tickets for our gig. He didn't get free tickets for his. <laughs> It's funny because obviously I met Bob during his stay in London because he was effectively in exile, right? Of course. And um, people I, weren't supposed to know he was here. I mean, luckily I struck up a relationship with him. I mean, people say we were friends, but that's pushing it a bit. Basically, I sort of took care of his nutritional requirements. And then one day I went round to his place. I didn't know you were a cook. And <laughs> one day I went round to his place to get some money he owed me. And I'm wearing bondage trousers, these punk trousers. 
And he looks at me and he's like, Dunlitz, we are dealing with a nasty punk rocker. He's been reading the tabloid press, which had paid a very... And also, he's living. He's living only a few hundred yards from Malcolm McLaren and Vivian's shop. Exactly. But he'd, he'd got a very negative idea what punks was, was about. Basically, I was like, Bob, you're wrong. You know, these people are my mates. We're like-minded rebels. And he's like, yeah, bugger off. And I left with my tail between my legs. And it was a big deal for me to hold my ground with Bob. But my take on it was that through staying and living here in London and meeting people like yourselves, journalists like you and Vivian Goldman, that he became more hip to the situation. And he did actually realise that there was some kind of connection, spiritual or attitude or something. I mean, it must have been very different from his other exile in Wilmington, you know, where he's dealing with the Ku Klux Klan, you know. It must have been a, a very expansive time for him. And he, Bob is going out. You know, people like to think, oh, Bob's his purist. Bob's going to Tramps, the, the upmarket up nightclub with girls drinking three bottles of champagne. You know, he's actually having quite a good time, as well as playing football in Battersea Park. Bob's next album, 1978's Kaya, which was actually recorded at the same time as Exodus at Island Studios in Basing Street, London, seemed to be a distinctly more chilled affair. Why do you think that was, Chris? Well, people seem to get very bent out of shape about this, and this of comparisons of Kaya and Exodus. And I don't understand why at all, because it's like, you know, the t- it's, it's like the two sides of Bob Marley or the two sides of Jamaican music. It's like, you know, for example, on, on Rastaman Vibration, begin, the record begins with positive vibration, ends with war. There's, there's always these different sides to him. I think a significant effort was made to, to show that they would sound different. For example, whereas Exodus was mixed in London, Kaya was mixed in Miami. You know, so you can feel the kind of sumptuous heat, the tropical feel of it. That You can feel, you know, the parrot feather-like breeze blowing against you. And Bob was living there then. Bob, Bob had shifted there for a bit. His mummy bought his mum a place there. So a tune like Easy Skanking, which begins the record, just to me is perfect, says it all. What's the problem? So do you think it was the criticism levelled at Kaya due to its perceived lack of bite that Bob came back with 1979's more militant and pan-African survival? Or was it something else? And what do you think he would have thought had he lived to see how Robert Mugabe turned out? Well, there's several questions there. And what, but one point worth making, you know, the, 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 you know, the perceived lack of bite in Kaya, which I disagree with, it's the, the, the launch of Kaya was the One Love Peace concert in, in, in April 1978 in Kingston, and nothing could have been more controversial or potentially militant than, than that, because uh, this, was, this, was, this concert was held to bring together the opposing fighting factions uh, in Jamaican politics. And everyone talks about, you know, the, the, I'm told the term one love is rather a misnomer because all these people have been trying to kill each other two weeks before are rubbing shoulders with each other and possibly still wanting to do it, actually. So, you know, there is that mood around, around Bob uh, that, that w- which must carry on. And the, the point about survival is, what hits you first about survival? The cover. Wow. It's kind of devastating. It must have been devastating to people who've never seen these images, which have, which is of, sl- you know, it's d- line drawings of of slaves packed in to the to the to, to the holes of slave ships. It's, I mean, it's like you know, if you're going for a commercial record. This is like not heavy. really a way to sell it. It's very, very heavy, but righteously so, and the right thing to do. And so this is this is Bob's most militant record, really. I mean, obviously, there's the song Zimbabwe on it, which we'll come to in a second. 
but Africa Unite, for example. It says it all in the title. This is like, this is a magnificent record, and it's stark, and it's sparse, and, you know, as I said, right from the cover, it hits you in your soul. Zimbabwe, though, was um, a song that the freedom fighters in, in what was then the racist state of Rhodesia were known to sing and be inspired by. And, of course, Bob Marley is, is, is pays for himself initially, uh, and the Whalers, $300,000, to go to the Rhodesia independence uh, celebrations. And of course, Robert Mugabe takes over. Bob would have been shocked. He would have been hurt by what had happened to that country. I mean, his vision of, you know, as I said, does that cheat Africa unite? That's what he wants. He doesn't want despots and dictators ruining that beautiful land. 1980s uprising would turn out to be Bob's last record whilst he was alive. A deeply spiritual album, it was obviously informed by circumstance. And to me, it seemed like Bob stood firm till the very end, almost being stronger than those around him. Chris, you were fairly close to the inner circle. What was your take on the situation? Well, it, it didn't seem that things were going well. In, um, for example, on on that on the last dates in the United States when he's playing in um, in New York, it's, it's and he's supporting the Commodores. But I mean, it's kind of like the idea is to blow them off stage. And Denny Sims is back managing him at that point, by the way. The, you know, it's like a pimper's paradise, as he would sing, because, you know, he, he's staying at the Essex house, but it's, it's crackheads and coke dealers, free, no, it wasn't crackheads, and free bases around him. I mean, all those things that Jamaicans had picked up from kind of the worst extremes of, you know, black American show business were being manifested as hookers around. So it's all very sordid and, and, un, and unpleasant and seems a bit out of control. But still, I think the Uprising record is magnificent. And I mean, there's the kind of, there's, there's, you know, there's a deep spirituality about it. But there's also tunes like Could You Be Loved, which is like, you know, Bob doing a disco tune. And I think it's magnificent. So, what did you make of 1983's posthumously released Confrontation? I mean, considering it was pieced together from demos, unreleased material, along with overdubs by the i3s, it feels amazingly cohesive. And to the very end, perfectly demonstrated the double-edged sword that was Bob Marley. You know, I personally think Bob Marley never recorded a single bad track. And I went down to Jamaica in 1983 before the record was released. And, uh, and I heard those tunes. And like Buffalo Soldier, which I'd never heard before. Trenchtown. You think, oh, Bob's coming out with another tune called Trenchtown. He's pushing it a bit. It's tremendous. And also those singles. Well, the records that have been released is Tough Kong Singles, Black Man Redemption and Rasta Man Live Up, which actually Chris Blackwell hadn't thought they were much more appropriate for the Jamaican market than, than for the white market, interestingly enough. They sound terrific. Both Black Man Red- I, I remember buying those on as Tough Kong 45s at the time, possibly in Jamaica. And, you know, Rasta Man Lives Up kind of like really states it all. You know, I know, I know it's a posthumous record, but it's Bob still stating it. Rasta Man Live Up. It's Reggae 45's All The Way with Don Letts. You know, there's one thing that's playing on my mind, Chris, that I've got to ask you about, because there seems to me a systemised defanging, declawing of Bob's legacy. I mean... Diluting. For, yeah, diluting. and Because, I, I mean, for a lot of people in the 21st century, Bob Marley's all about one love, which is cool and all, but I think it's the get-up, stand-up Bob that most people on this planet relate to. Your take? You know, I, I agree 100%. I mean, I think the paradox is illustrated uh, October, the year before last, 
I was in uh, Warsaw in Poland, actually making a film about Polish reggae. And that was the same day that I arrived. There was a march by 100,000 women against the stringent anti-abortion laws of this very right-wing government under the banner of no woman, no cry. To me, that sort of said it all. You know, it's like, you know, the, the, he's, in, he, he, he's empowered these women to be militant through a song that you wouldn't really thought was a militant song. That's the paradox of Bob Marley. Well, my friends, we've reached the end of our time with all-round gentleman and scholar Chris Salovich. Thanks for your unique insight, my friend. And if you want more, look no further than Chris's book, Bob Marley, The Untold Story. Until such time, it just leaves me to say thanks for giving me yours. Now we are this! This has been the Reggae 45 Show with Don Letts and Turtle Bay. The UK's finest Caribbean restaurants. Find us at turtlebay.co.uk. We are out.